Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I have words in my head. Joining me is Danny, who has rhythm in their soul. I have been playing a lot of Rayart games. And Liz, who has lunch in their stomach. Ugh, excuse me. Our book this month is Feet of Clay, the story that blends social constructs with literal constructs. Going into this one, what were you expecting? I was actually pretty close. My closest guesses are always the one I think are totally implausible. (laughs) (laughs) Uh My thought was that this was going to be like a potter's guild or something going on strike. (laughs) Okay. I think I saw the cover of the book before I had checked it out or anything when we talked about it last time and I was like, Okay, it seems like it might be about golems, but I I didn't, like, really look into it any further than that. However, when I was double-checking if I could get it from my local library, I just googled feet of clay. And I guess it's a phrase that means uh, something like a leader who's kind of weak of heart. Yep, there's a mention of it in the trivia section, actually. Which is probably a good enough segue to dive into said trivia section as baked in the furnace of the secret extra sister. Published in 1996 and coming in at 120,000 words, Feet of Clay is the 19th Discworld novel and the third in the City Watch series. The title comes from the Tanah, specifically a story of King Nebuchadnezzar describing a statue that he saw in a dream, and the phrase has since come to mean a fatal flaw in a person of prominence, similar to an Achilles heel. The creation of golems in this story is directly derived from Hebrew folklore, although many of the details are more inspired by Isaac Asimov's stories of robots. This is made especially clear by a mention of some of the laws in the golem's programming, which are Asimov's laws of robotics paraphrased to sound like religious texts. Feet of Clay was translated into German in 1998, Dutch in 2000, and French in 2002. It placed 7th in the 1997 Locus Award poll for Best Fantasy Novel, and was a nominee for the Prometheus Award the same year. In December 1999, it was republished along with Guards Guards and Men at Arms in the omnibus The City Watch Trilogy. The 1997 audiobook version is read by Nigel Planer, and comes in at 9.5 hours, with an abridged version read by Tony Robinson released in 2005. As with many Discworld stories, Stephen Briggs has adapted it for the stage, and the script has been published both on its own and as part of the compilation All the Discworlds a Stage. And this story is likely going to be one of those adapted into the forthcoming TV series, The Watch. I hope they do it justice, pun intended. A lot of people are not hopeful about that series. Mm. I don't know if I'll actually check it out. All right. Our story begins in spring, in the back streets of Ankh-Morpork, the largest city of the Discworld. Mr. Carey, the candle maker, is half bullied, half negotiated into purchasing a shiny new golem, which is unusual because, supposedly, golems aren't being made anymore. Summer passes, and with autumn comes several attempted murders. The first one we see is successful. As the priest, Father Tubluk, bleeds out, something places a rolled-up piece of paper in his mouth. We then cut to Samuel Vimes, commander of the City Watch, as his morning shave is interrupted by a bolt from an assassin's crossbow. The young man then falls into one of the many traps that Vimes has set up around his estate, and the commander sends him back to the assassin's guild, with the bill for his shaving mirror, 
and instructions to raise the price on his head. And this whole interaction is very funny. Vimes is kind of like toying with the assassin who's like tried to kill him and is very clearly like pretty annoyed about it, but not very threatened. He knows what's going down. He knows how it's going to happen. And he's mostly he just seems annoyed. He's just like, oh, amateurs. Uh huh. Yeah, it kind of seems like it's a game he's playing with them. But also it's made clear in the text that he is kind of a paranoid person. So it must be a little bit validating to have people actually out to get him. Yeah, especially because it seems like his new life of luxury is a little bit more dull than his uh, life on the beat. I think dull, and also he finds it not unfulfilling, but like insincere. He makes it very clear throughout the text that he hates rich people, despite having married the richest woman in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I think is part of what makes him so sympathetic a character. He loathes the people who are actually responsible for the worst parts of capitalist society. His warning routine complete, Vimes has an interview with the dwarf Cheery Littlebottom, former member of the Alchemists Guild, but recently and forcefully expelled. Cheery is hired as the Watch's Forensics Department, and gets shown the ropes by Sergeant Detritus. We'll talk more about Cheery later, but I want to take a moment at this part. Each of the recurring Watch characters has a bit of a subplot in this story. With Detritus, it's his campaign against the narcotic Slab. See, on Discworld, trolls, such as Detritus, are creatures of living stone, so human drugs don't affect them. Instead, they use a compound of radium and ammonium chloride. There's something almost humanizing about Slab as a world-building detail, the way that even these non-animal beings have drugs. But the way it has a light-hearted parody of the war on drugs of the 80s is extremely indicative of how Terry Pratchett was writing from a place of privilege, doubly so considering how the narrative brushes off the use of extrajudicial violence. It undercuts a later point about how justice needs to be done in the light. Much as I agree with the main points that this book raises, I'd feel like a hypocrite if I didn't at least address some of these issues. We've talked about this before, and I know I've mentioned it specifically, but there are definitely points in the series where the books kind of show their age. (laughs) This is definitely one of them, but it kind of gets passed over so quickly that there's not a whole lot of time to linger on it. Yeah, I think fundamentally a way that they show their age is that the police in this universe exist to protect people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I entirely forgot that Slab existed. Because I I read the book early in the month, rather than my usual saving it for later, so I have it fresh in mind for this. I started it September 8th, and I finished it September 8th. Wow, Wow. you breezed through it. (laughs) I liked this one a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So, after his interview with Cheery, Vimes has another appointment. Last time we saw him was his wedding with Lady Sybil Ramkin, heir to the oldest and richest family in the city. And now that he's married into nobility, Vimes is going to get a coat of arms. So he goes to the Royal College of Heralds. The central joke with the college is that they paint the coats of arms from life, so they have a whole menagerie of heraldic animals such as lions and eagles and hippos, all sorts of things. They get actually insulted when Vimes says you could just make it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vimes meets the head of the college, the vampire, Steve. (laughs) So hang on. All right, no, his actual name is Dragon King of Arms. Steve seemed pretty close. I think I like Steve better. And so Vimes learns that there is already a Vimes family crest, but it was retired after his ancestor, Suffer Not Injustice, also known as Old Stoneface, 
executed the last king of Ankh-Morpork. Also, this is the book where, in doing research, I found out that Stoneface Vimes is meant to be a parody of Oliver Cromwell, so that's fun. Oh. Yeah, there's mention of uh, Stoneface's, what was it, Vimes's Iron Heads, which is a conflation of the Round Heads and the Iron Sides, uh, two names for the parliamentarian soldiers of Oliver Cromwell, according to the lspace.org annotations. So Dragon, in this discussion, also mentions that the royal family of Ankh-Morpork does have an existing heir in the Watch. It's an open secret that Captain Carrot Iron Founderson is the true king of the city, which is why Vimes is surprised when Dragon says that the royal heir is actually Corporal Nobbs, the stunted, weaselly delinquent who has to carry around an official certificate to proclaim his humanity. Oh, what did you think of that revelation? I think I've mentioned before that at this point, I'm about willing to accept anything Discworld throws at me. So while that was really like, uh, are you sure? I was almost willing to accept it. You know, I was like, you know what, why not? Only, I yeah. mean, I did know about Carrot, so that was a little confusing. Like, So I was torn between just blind acceptance and are you sure it's not just a case of mistaken identity? <laughs> I mean, a royal family can have can have more than one scion. Mm -hmm. There is something that is like, it kind of seems like kind of a comedy of errors about it. It's like Dragon's really trying to get Vimes to like make that discovery on his own. And then Vimes is just like, really? Like he's <laughs> completely incredulous and I think we are all with him for the most part. But as it also, is also pointed out later, Nobby being kind of... The narrative doesn't say ugly, but uh, reading between the lines for that word, you basically have lines several miles apart to contain the size of the words ugly. That was a weird way to phrase it. I hope you all followed that metaphor. <laughs> that could the product of royal inbreeding and such. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a case to be made. Yeah, there's just enough plausibility that it's like, okay... I guess if this guy's saying it. Speaking of Captain Carrot, he's been having breakfast with his girlfriend and fellow officer, Constable Angua von Überwald. Specifically, he's feeding her table scraps because she's currently in her wolf form. It's so good to see Angua again. Yeah. Angua kind of has two subplots in this story, uh, one with Chiri and one with Carrot. The Carrot one is largely a holdover from, from the previous Watch story, uh, her personal insecurities are manifesting as a question of whether a human and a werewolf can have a sustainable long-term relationship, mixed with jealousy because Carrot doesn't seem to prioritize her over the rest of the city, but has sort of equal love for everybody, which is frustrating for her as his romantic partner. Her feelings are not invalid, but I think she's operating on a slightly different wavelength to him. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be damaging to their relationship unless they, say it with me now, Communicate. <laughs> yeah, there is something very, at least I found very relatable about Angua in this book. It, I don't know, like I've very much been there, and it's like that's a really, really hard thing to juggle. And it was kind of nice to see that that's a thing other people experience, even though Angua is a fictional character, not like a real life human being. Yeah, I think a large part of the success of the series is owed to how human its characters are, especially the female characters. Carrot is very strongly 
carrot. He's very much himself, which mm -hmm. can get in the way of things, understandably. But also at the same time, Angua isn't comfortable as herself quite yet, which is also entirely fine. What mortal is truly comfortable with themselves? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like one of those things like in any relationship, you kind of just need to figure out how to make the differences work. And like you said, doing that requires communication. So after foiling a brief heist, Carrot and Angua go for a date at the Dwarf Bread Museum where they discover that the owner, Mr. Hopkinson, has been murdered with one of his own loaves. Dwarf bread was established in several previous novels as a foodstuff so dense that you could theoretically use it as a weapon, but this story expands it to a full arsenal of baked goods. It seems like there was a, a, like Pratchett had a lot of fun with the idea of weaponized dwarf bread, and so... <laughs> References and jokes to it are made throughout the book. I love the weaponized dwarf bread. Just the terms that come up with bread weapons are very fun. And they're all excellent band names. Yeah. Probably like pop punk that like has like a light and fluffy aesthetic, but like the songs <laughs> are actually have very serious stuff to the lyrics. Mm-hmm. I'm very on board with this idea. All right. So opening for the Mountain Goats, it's Combat Croissants. <laughs> I assume they function as boomerangs. <laughs> I would be disappointed if they didn't. <laughs> While Angua and Carrot investigate that murder, Vimes is doing the same for the murder of Father Tubelsek. Pronunciation is hard. I ask our audience to bear with bear with all of us as we struggle through words that we all have only read. Yeah. So Vimes discovers the paper in the priest's mouth, which is inscribed with holy symbols. This is also where we meet Constable Visit the Infidel with Explanatory Pamphlets. Those of you who are here for the Small Gods episode will recall Omnia, the country centered around a parody of fanatical Christianity and the Inquisition and everything, and their deadly worship of their god Om. In the time since then, Omnians have become much more peaceful, but no less zealous. <sighs> Somebody did that to me once at work. Oh, dear. <laughs> work in retail at a candy store. A guy slides his little thing across the counter. Just something for me to read, quote-unquote. I don't know what about me made you think that I needed this. I think you were guilty of the crime of existing in public. <laughs> Fair enough. So, now we have two murders. One a holy man, the other a museum keeper. And, as Vimes enters the office of Lord Vetinari, ruler of Ankh-Morpork, he discovers another attempt. Somebody has poisoned the patrician. A little bit of an Agatha Christie bent to this one, what with the, all of the poisoning, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Weirdly enough, that's been, like, Agatha Christie has been, like, a thing coming up a lot in my life recently. And so, poisons are very much, like, on my brain, I guess, at the moment. <laughs> as the Watch investigates for the source of the poisoning... Angua and Carrot meet Chiri, and Angua immediately sniffs out the dwarf's secret. Chiri is in fact a female dwarf, which is apparently something that dwarves refuse to discuss. Now, there have been a couple female dwarves in previous books, so this doesn't quite match the established canon, but it's st the status quo going forward, and the generally accepted view is to just say okay, and decide on whatever explanation you like best. I have more thoughts on dwarf gender that I'll save for the end. I love Cheery very much, and she deserves the world. Mm. 
Yes, I agree. The whole book, I'm just like, yes, go, live your dream. <laughs> so moving on from there, uh, Danny, hmm? quick question. How much would you estimate that it takes to make your way in the world today? Uh, would it be fair to say that it requires everything you've got? Definitely as much as you can give at a given moment. Mm-hmm. And Liz, uh, how much would it help to take a break from all your worries? Like, a little? More? Less? I, I feel like there's something here I'm not understanding. Well, in that case, I would suggest you go where everybody knows your shape <laughs> and they're <laughs> not inclined to jape. You want to know the place to go. It's where the undead escape. You want to be where everybody knows your shape. Oh my for those keeping score at home, that was my rewriting of the Cheers theme to be appropriate to the Undead Tavern Beers, which is where Angua and Shiri go in the next scene. Oh, man. Fun fact, I've never seen Cheers. Neither have I, but I looked up the theme song for this. I put work into that rewrite, so thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> so, like I said, uh, Angua takes Cheri to the Undead Tavern Beers. There, an oblivious Chiri tells Angua about her hatred for werewolves and reveals how she wears silver chainmail. Intentionally or not, I'd say Angua's situation here is a compelling analogy for coming out. It's not a one-and-done thing. People tend to make assumptions, and you might be afraid to correct them because of how it will affect your relationship to that person. It's, it's also another one of those things you kind of have to piece together with context. But I do believe Angua is actually related to the werewolves that are the reason Chiri wears the chainmail. They come from the same area. Entirely possible, yeah. And Chiri, I believe, mentioned that it was uh, werewolves that kind of terrorized everybody and killed people. I think she said they ate a relative of hers. Yeah. Which is kind of mentioned later that it's like... Oh, well, she heard it from, like, a cousin that their cousin was eaten. And then mm. kind of one of the things that's like, okay, everybody knows somebody who knows somebody, but... A lot of the undead don't quite fit the oppressed minority, like, thing that, that the narrative is trying to put them into a little bit. Because a lot of people do have a legitimate reason to be afraid of them. Even if it's not directly supported by individuals, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. it's another example of how the whole, like, from a different time thing. We have sort of grokked that that's not quite the correct way to do these things. At least I hope a lot of us have. Yeah. Piecing together evidence gathered from the crime scenes of Father Telsek and Mr. Hopkinson, Angua figures out a potential link, golems. With Chiri in tow, she goes to a nearby slaughterhouse and speaks with the golem there, Dorfel. As an aside, all of the golems have names that either are or are derived from Yiddish. Dorfel is based on the word dorf, which is a diminutive term for village. And actually, can I surprise you two with a thing? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Dorfel was actually introduced in a previous book. Really? Which one? Men at Arms. He was like mentioned in like a very offhand, like single sentence. That's actually oh. also that passage introduces feet of clay as a term for golems, which is not borne out here, but it is the title of this story, so. Mm -hmm. Take of that what huh. you will. I like that. That's nice. Part of me suspects that the name Dorfil like, is used here because it was re 
mentioned in a previous book. And pure speculation, I feel like Terry was like trying to evoke Yiddish without like using a direct term, which is why he changed it from Dorf to Dorfel. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But then when he like leaned into the Jewish like folklore golem as the golems in this world. I think some things got a little bit mixed up. We don't, like, this is not an excuse, just an attempt at an explanation. That's one of those, like, complicated things that comes up when you're writing. It's, if you're trying to make something that's inspired by a real-life culture, how much you borrow starts to get really, really difficult on where it crosses into, like, potentially problematic areas. After Ankwa and Chiri leave the slaughterhouse, Dorfel takes the day off. Golems don't need to rest, but they don't work on holy days. And more Porkians don't seem to know which ones are holy days for golems. Which I imagine a lot of Jewish folks can understand, because uh, Christian-centric countries like England and America, Jewish holidays are not really like particularly well-respected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, we know that. So, yeah... Following that line of thought, Rosh Hashanah was actually very recently. Yes. I want to wish a Happy New Year to any and all of our Jewish listeners. Mm-hmm. So that evening, at the Watch headquarters, Sergeant Colin is helping Corporal Nobbs come to grips with his new status as the Earl of Ankh. Their conversation is interrupted by Dorfel, who has come to confess to the murder of Father Tublasek. Carrot questions the golem, and whatever it says... It's clear that it didn't commit the crime. The scene with Carrot questioning, and all of his interactions with Dorfel, really depict him as a very interesting mix of clever and simple, both conniving and sincere. He's grown a lot since his introduction in Guards Guards, having learned to accept others beyond his established understanding of what constitutes people, and he demonstrates that with the golems, understanding and empathizing with them. Kind of an aside, if I recall correctly, he purposefully misled Dorfel with the murder weapon, and Dorfel just simply agreed with whatever he was saying, so it was a it was a pretty good trap. Yeah, I mean, it was also kind of hinted at that Dorfel was just accepting whatever people accused him of when Nobbs and Colin also just started listing a whole series of unsolved crimes, and Dorfel was just admitting to all of them. <laughs> And it definitely kind of feels like Dorful and Carrot's scene is like the first time in the book where golems are treated as more than just like sentient objects. They are like beings who, even though it doesn't seem at face value, do have underlying emotions and motives. They're really cool characters. And of course, Carrot is not without flaws in this book. We'll come back to mm-hmm. that with the dwarf gender stuff, but it's an interesting thing. Angua follows Dorfel's scent back to a warehouse, and from the other scents there, she realizes that this is the location of secret golem meetings. What goal they have is not yet clear. Right, this whole scene, like, was chilling. We haven't mentioned it yet, but uh, golems, they don't have mouths, they can't speak. So in order to communicate, they write on a, like, a slate with chalk. Angua and Carrot, they went into this room, and the walls are just covered with golems arguing with each other. Just words everywhere, scratched out and rewritten, I'm just like, ooh. Oh god, it's a, it's a group chat argument, but, like, overlaid <laughs> on top of each other. Oh no. <laughs> and they were writing in all caps, too. 
As Corporal Nobbs and Sergeant Colon get drunk in the Mended Drum Tavern, Cheery has begun testing various items from the palace for arsenic, since that seems to be whatever made Lord Vetinari sick. She eventually finds it, not on anything from the palace, but on residue from the murder of Father Tolbusek, meaning that whoever killed the priest may also be the one poisoning Vetinari. Like, this book leans really, really hard into, like, the mystery detective novel kind of vibe. And this is where, like, those pieces are starting to, like, get put together. And you're like, oh, there's something here. There's definitely a lot of references to, like, CSI, Law and Order type stuff. Especially when Chiri has the camera and tells the imp inside to, like, enhance. To, like, zoom <laughs> uh-huh. in on specific <laughs> details. Uh huh. Yeah. Which is more plausible than when they do it on a digital image in that stuff. That's why the best cameras have a good physical zoom as well as a digital zoom because digital just makes the pixels bigger. Physical actually zooms. So the next day, the investigation finds several more instances of arsenic poisoning, specifically the patrons of Gimlet's Dwarf Delicatessen. So that means somebody in the area has been poisoning rats. Or at least has left arsenic out where rats can get it. So Sergeant Colin goes to investigate. Oh, oh yeah, dwarfs in Discworld eat rats. It's it's played for as a joke, but like, I don't know. So along his way, Sergeant Colin meets Wee Mad Arthur, the six-inch tall rat catcher, who points Colin to the area where rats have been dying. While knocking on doors, Colin is welcomed inside and promptly knocked unconscious. Do you not knock unconscious the people you invite into your house? Not usually. Like, first I like, take their coat and everything, obviously. It's good to know some of us still have etiquette. <laughs> I only knock people unconscious metaphorically by boring them with long lectures about Discworld. <laughs> <laughs> no. Meanwhile, a maid from the patrician's staff has gone missing, so Vimes investigates her home, which coincidentally is on the same street where he grew up. There, he stumbles upon a double funeral, the maid's grandmother and baby brother, both of whom died of arsenic poisoning. Vines returns to the watchhouse and finds a bottle in his desk. As a recovering alcoholic, he is lured in by the temptation. Vimes being an alcoholic is like a major part of the City Watch series. Part of uh, Vimes finding the bottle in his desk drawer is he's questioning how it could have gotten there, and he kind of vaguely comes to the conclusion that it must have been there for ages and he's just forgotten about it. And as a separate thought, as somebody who's known a lot of people who struggle with alcoholism, it is kind of nice to see characters in books who are the heroes and it's not like kind of played off as a joke. Or demonized more than it already is. We have this misconception that if you fall into the grips of an addiction, that's entirely your fault and doing rehab and and breaking the addiction is somehow your penance for committing these evils upon yourself. And it just doesn't make any sense. Well, it's very much part of her puritanical culture, especially here in America, right? The mm-hmm. whole idea of the fall from grace and redemption through suffering. Yeah. yeah. It's a crying shame that that's so instilled in us. I also want to point out, I really, it feels weird to use this word, but I enjoy the language surrounding the alcoholism. One would be too many and two is not enough. That and mm-hmm. like one drink arrives in many glasses, stuff like that. There's a very like 
poetic sense in it. It evokes how the feeling of helplessness that I imagine is a like, big part of it. Yeah. On the opposite side of the city from where Vimes was investigating... Corporal Nobbs has, has been invited to an upper-crust soiree where members of the nobility are, are disgusted by him to the point of fascination. <laughs> With veterinary indisposed, they suggest that Nobby could take the throne. Terrified at how Vimes would react, the corporal flees. How very Nobby of him. Yeah. <laughs> The whole scene with Nobby being like stupendously terrified of the of of being uh-huh. the king facing down Vimes, uh-huh. it's quite funny. <laughs> the re- the refrain of "Eat go spare," <laughs> uh, yeah. Carrot releases Dorfel from the watch jail, but soon enough he and Angua find the golem being attacked by a mob of people eager to have a scapegoat for their long-standing fear of the clay constructs. After rescuing him, they buy Dorfel from his owner and give him to himself. This freedom sends Dorfel into an anarchist frenzy, and he briefly goes on a liberation rampage. Oh man, that I, I was laughing so hard during that. Like, what are you doing? Are you, like, he frees all the animals. I'm like, are, are you just gonna go off into the sunset or whatever and just raise these animals? What's going on? Oh, but he definitely sees a correlation between his like servitude and their imprisonment, right? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely was picking that up. I was more along the lines of he was just causing chaos for the for the people who had been so dismissive of him. I mean, he definitely did a lot of that as well. <laughs> Shoving the apple and everything. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Also, just the scene where Dorfel, like, understands his own freedom is... It's a trip, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Elsewhere, Sergeant Cullen has woken up and manages to flee from his captors by going into the sewers, where he reconvenes with Wee Mad Arthur. On the orders of the people who knock Cullen out, the two of them are chased by a new golem, one with its head formed into a crown. I also just briefly want to talk about Wee Mad Arthur, like, as a character, because he's very amusing, even if he does kind of play into, like, a lot of unflattering stereotypes about Scottish people by being, like, drunk and belligerent. Yeah. He is a bit of, like, an enigma, though, because they don't really talk about, like, what he is that makes him, like, six inches tall. It's just, he's Wee Mad Arthur, and that's, like, all anybody really needs to know. I think they said he was a gnome at one point. In Men at Arms, we discussed Vimes' boots theory of economic unfairness, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. We Met Arthur demonstrates a different take on economic principles of a fantasy world, and the whole idea of fair not meaning equal, because for a human, a dollar buys a loaf of bread, right? Mm-hmm. But for We Met Arthur, that loaf of bread is a lot more food, proportionally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not quite as profound as the whole bit about the boots, but... It's an interesting mm-hmm. little demonstration of different principles, right? Yeah, it's definitely like a bit of an exploration of an idea that like does kind of like flesh out the world a little bit, if nothing else. And I suppose from his perspective, he's an able person in a handicapped world, but with everybody else being burdened with excessive mass. Mm-hmm. When Carrot returns to the Watch House, he is greeted by the leaders of the city's most prominent guilds, Dr. Downey of the Assassins, Mr. Bogus of the Thieves, and Mrs. Palm of the <clears throat> Seamstresses. 
At their insistence, Carrot brings them all up to the commander's office, where Vimes is draped over his desk, and the room reeks of alcohol. When Dr. Downey retrieves a packet of powder from Vimes' desk and proclaims it to be arsenic, Vimes leaps up, fully sober, punches the assassin in the face, and eats the packet to reveal that it's actually sugar. I love Vimes so much. It's definitely a lot of a reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Vimes probably has a lot of negative feelings towards Dr. Downey, being someone who's not a huge fan of murder in general, and of rich people in mm. particular. Oh, yeah. So a rich murderer is kind of like his ideal enemy. Not to mention he's been targeted by assassins for a while now. Yeah, I think he's Vimes and Dr. Downey have both earned that good sock across the jaw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to Dr. Downey's credit, he takes it in stride. Yeah, Vimes shows that he very much understands everything about the situation and is well prepared for it it goes back to something i was talking about earlier with him being very paranoid right and that was kind of what the Mm -hmm. earlier scene with the assassin demonstrated there are a lot of decisions in this book that provide like nice character details but also like really flesh out the plot in uh Mm -hmm. unsuspecting ways yeah vimes manages to evade both literal assassination and character assassination (laughs) when the guild leaders leave Vimes reveals to Carrot what he's figured out. And I'm also going to add in just like some stuff that I pieced together that it, in the narration doesn't entirely spell out. Maybe because I, I needed to figure it out and I imagine that other people would benefit from this explanation as well. Here's the chain of events as I understand it. Dorfal and the other golems constructed themselves a king baked in Mr. Hopkinson's dwarf bread oven and animated by a Chem, written by Father Tulisek. The Golubs put all of their hopes and dreams into this king, filling it with so many instructions that it went mad. What pushed the king over the edge, however, was when someone started using it as an accessory for murder. Because Vimes has also deduced that the arsenic in the palace isn't in the food, isn't in the books, isn't even in the wallpaper, it's in the candles. The stubs of which maids are allowed to take home, because they're trash to a rich person. But there's a good uh, hour or two of light left in them if you put them on like a plate. So the king golem was ordered to put the arsenic into the candles, and because this isn't directly harming anybody, it was able to do that without breaking the rules of like physically hurting anyone. But as a rational being, it understood that it was causing harm, and that conflict kind of broke it. And I would suspect that the king killed Mr. Hopkinson and Father Tulik in a deluded attempt to undo its own existence. Yeah, this ties together a lot of threads that really starts to provide a lot of depth to the golems and the events that happen in this book. Yeah, like... I'm so used to multiple storylines just running parallel to each other. At this point, when it all ties together again, is always so satisfying. I know, right? Mm -hmm. I hope I got that right. I encourage anybody who thinks I didn't to reach out to us. We always enjoy the engagement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They still don't know who is behind the poisoning, but the Watch does know where to go next. So, the relevant Watch characters split up. Vimes and Detritus go in search of Sergeant Colon, while Carrot, Ankua, and Chiri go to the Candlemaker. Vimes 
quickly finds Colin caught up in a stampede of animals that Dorfel let loose. That sergeant is rescued when weed-mad Arthur headbutts a bull, knocking it unconscious. This goes back to the Scottish thing, if I may reference the comedian Frankie Boyle. If you had to describe Scotland, call it the nation where you could depend on a member of the public to punch a man who was on fire. To punch a flaming man to the ground. <laughs> they they used with Arthur the weird shrinking conundrum that you see a lot in uh, superhero stories about uh, maintaining mass but losing volume, thereby making him more dense. So he could punch with the strength of a full-grown human, but at his size, it's more direct. And you get the effect similar to a mantis shrimp, where they are incredibly destructive. We should all fear the shrimp. Oh, yes. So, Carrot, Angua, and Chiri arrive at the candle maker and are threatened by the panicked Mr. Carey. He explains that someone is forcing him to make the poisoned candles, and also demonstrates how terrified he is of the king golem. The king then attacks the watch officers, when who should come to their aid but Dorful? He fights with the king, and ends up partially decapitated, and his chem is crumpled. But he reanimates himself with the might of his liberty, and fully decapitates the king. Which I imagine is about the point where Vimes really decided that this is a golem he could like. That's, uh, that has to be a metaphor for something. I'm just not able to think of it right now because I, it's just one of those nights. It's either Vimes or Carrot who says, of the golems, they thought a king would set them free. But it is the, the freest golem who decapitates the king, much like Vimes, Stoneface Vimes, decapitated the last king of Ankh-Morpork. Before the watch can go off in pursuit of the true culprit... They have to rescue Chiri, who, during the fight, got knocked onto a rope now suspended over a vat of boiling wax. To rescue her, Angua changes into wolf form and leaps over the vat, knocking Chiri to safety but injuring herself on the dwarf's silver chainmail. Alongside Carrot and Angua, Chiri kind of filled comic relief role. So, like, at the start of this whole fight... It was it was very it was pretty amusing to see her overcome her own fear or use her fear to propel her into, you know, so much action that it scared even Carrot. Incidentally, uh, one of the things that, that she says during this exchange, that Carrot translates as the traditional dwarf battle cry, today is a good day for someone else to die. <laughs> People probably understand that as a reference to Star Trek the Klingons, and that's probably what the reference Terry is making here. But you know, that's actually originally a battle cry for the, hoping I'm pronouncing this right, Lakota First Nations. It's a multi-layered reference. The watch bake Dorfel a new body, one capable of speech, and Vimes deputizes him to help pursue the mastermind behind the conspiracy, Dragon King of Arms, who has been micromanaging the bloodlines of Ankh-Morpork for centuries. Dragon reveals that he wants the monarchy restored because Vetinari's reign allows for the ascension of people that he, Dragon, deems lesser folk, thereby polluting the lineages of noble families. He does have evidence for Carrot's claim to the throne, but faked a family tree for Corporal Nobs, 
partly to give the city a more and more easily controlled ruler, but mostly because he just didn't want a werewolf to be queen. Rude. You suppose that is the extent of his motivations, because, like, Vimes does bring up in the text, and some people agree with this interpretation, that Dragon's whole thing with, like, trying to breed Angmorpork's nobles, like, to be the best stock they can, is, like, so that he can sample their blood and, like, enjoy the fruits of that labor directly. But I personally think it's more interesting if Dragon is uninterested in the blood of the families that he's shepherding and is just a traditionalist old codger. Mm-hmm. Who just also happens to be a vampire. Yeah, could be both. I'm not sure that it can be both, because he might have both aspects of it in him, but if it is the blood thing, then that very much makes him the villain because of his vampirism, not in addition to it. Mm. Yeah, I was I was thinking more that the uh, mixing different flavors, I suppose, of blood is a just a side perk of being traditionalist so-and-so because you know that type of person usually likes to reap as many benefits of their actions as possible yeah although he does benefit from the current system where people of non-noble birth can become well off enough to afford a coat of arms because that's how he and the royal college make their living is by painting coats of arms and more customers is better for business it also sort of besides this whole convoluted plot with the arsenic and the candles and the with the side effect of the golems throwing suspicion onto everybody else. It really does show just how conniving and just how intelligent Dragon is. Because, like, not only is he... Can he make a murder plot that hard to d- solve, but he's also manipulating nobles. And even in, in the coat of arms business, he puts layers upon layers into each crest that he makes to the point where he kind of got full of himself and the coat of arms that he made for the candle maker basically said hey he's the murderer so vimes has dorfel arrest dragon and takes him to the palace dungeon however Dragon being imprisoned or even executed won't end the self-important idolizing of tradition and heritage that he represents. So, Vimes burns down Dragon's collection of books on Ankh-Morpork's family history, effectively wiping out the foundation for that class structure and ridding the noble families of any meaningful way to claim superiority. Following in his ancestors' footsteps. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Cutting off systemic injustice at the source. Well, a source, anyway. They still got all yeah. of their, like, money and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, like, uh, Vimes, or maybe it's just the uh, dialogue, uh, not the dialogue, the, just the text of the book that mentions that you can't really, like, get rid of a vampire, because, yeah, you could kill them, but if, then if a drop of blood falls on them, then they're just back to life like normal. So this is kind of a way to like metaphorically kill dragons like um, machinations. Yeah, by killing everything that dragon cares about. A real big middle finger. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. With the arsenic candles gone, Vetinari makes a full recovery and obliquely congratulates Vimes on his work. Nobby is stripped of his false title, much to his relief. 
Angua, despite her fear and insecurity, resolves to maintain both her friendship with Chiri and her romance with Carrot. And Dorfil is sworn in as an officer of the Watch. He upsets representatives from the various religious organizations by refusing to pledge fealty to a deity, but delights Constable Visit by being open to religious discussion. And he confides in Vimes that he plans to use his pay to free the rest of Ankh-Morpork's golems. That's Feet of Clay! What did you think? Uh, like I said earlier, I, I started and finished it in one day, which is a record. I haven't <laughs> I haven't sped through a book like that in years, so I really liked it. Yeah, I loved it. I've always been a really big fan of, like, mysteries, and so kind of realizing at the beginning of this book that that's what this one was, I was immediately, like, super hooked in. Yeah, because, like, just going by the Watch series, Guards, Guards is kind of an action story more than a mystery, right? And Men at Arms is more of a thriller. But this Mm -hmm. is definitely a mystery story. Oh, yeah. Especially with, like, the scene setting with, like, it's the city's, like, covered in fog during this entire book. And it's, like, impossible to see where anybody is going. Very noir. Whatever that means. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to see to the point that where Vetinari just gives his boots to somebody else or trades his boots to somebody else so he can feel the cobbles and know where he's going again. Uh, Vimes. Oh, yeah, Vimes. Not I was looking at the, the page where v- Vimes traded his boots with somebody else so he could do his so he could feel where it was he was in the city because he had the rich person boots now because he could afford them. So some discussion stuff. Uh, first off, just the topic of golems in general. I know that they're a little bit of a... There's some discourse around golems in fantasy because they're very much a thing from Jewish folklore, but they're used as basically just fantasy robots. Mm -hmm. Now, this story definitely connects them to the Jewish culture and everything, right down to the font that they use for golem handwriting being indicative of Hebrew characters, right? So the question then becomes, is that really good representation considering like, they're non-human like, beings, but they're also the only connection to a like, culture that is marginalized in, a large, in large parts of the real world? And that really isn't our place to make that judgment uh but if anybody else uh is willing to or if anybody else like is jewish has the they have more authority to speak about that topic so if they have anything they want to say either in our discord or in the comments of the video i i at least would absolutely love to learn more about that yeah i know like I have unfortunately had very little exposure to Jewish culture throughout my life just because of where I live. But I guess like really what I could say about it is there are like tiers of what is like good and bad representation and something may not be great, but is it harmful? Like that kind of is like a really hard question to answer and But, like, I've seen lots of things that talk about specifically, like, uh, gay and trans representation in, like, 90s TV shows where it's like, 
okay, well, they had this character, they played into a lot of stereotypes, but the character was generally, it was always portrayed as a likable person. So even though it has all those harmful stereotypes, is there still some good in it? And I think that is really always kind of will differ from person to person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's not necessarily one definitive answer for that. It's, mm-hmm. yeah. But it's a source of, for discussion. And actually, going uh, off of what you were talking about, Liz, like the same token does also apply to Chiri. Her whole plot in here is very much a, analogous to like being transgender. She has grown up her whole life in a box, functionally labeled male, but after exposure to like the outside world, has realized how much more comfortable she is identifying and presenting, especially as a woman. And mm-hmm. large parts of that are played for laughs, like because dwarfs wear iron boots, she welds high heels onto them. But mm-hmm. it is also a serious issue that I think wasn't really recognized as such during the writing process, but probably resonates with a lot of fans. I did like, though, towards the end when the watch dwarves are coming back and they pass by Cheery and she's wearing a skirt of sorts and they start making fun of her for that. Uh, but a couple of them stop and are just like, yeah, can you can you tell me where I can get one of those? So she's kind of starting a trend that I hope would be, I don't know, better for everybody. Like, allowing people to present as they wish. (laughs) Yeah. And just while we're on the subject of dwarf gender, it's shown that this is an issue where Carrot, like, Carrot's indefatigable love of everyone falls short because having been raised by dwarves and steeped in their culture, he does hold a lot of dwarf views, especially on gender presentation. And at one point he actually says... That he presumes his mother was female, but at least she had the decency not to show it. Like, that's a direct quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Angua was saying, like, thinking to herself at one point, that she wished that he would show some human flaws, basically. And he does, but that's not exactly what she was going for. This is something that comes up in this book, but also a lot of the other Watch books, um, is that characters are shown to be displaying prejudice. And so... The book kind of makes it seem like that's a natural thing, like differing groups will not get along sometimes and hold prejudices against each other. But just because that's a thing that happens does not mean that it's an acceptable thing. And that all of the characters, a lot of the characters we see in the books, part of their growth in the series is learning that they are wrong on those things and change their mind and realize that they were being prejudiced even if they won't like say it. And this is not ever a thing that's like, really the focus of any of the books, but it is something that kind of seems to be happening always in the background of them. I would argue that it was kind of the focus of Men at Arms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. And I will say that there's also, it is a flawed depiction of racism because it's portraying it as the result of individual behaviors rather than systemic injustice. But, mm-hmm. you know, baby steps. It's it's also really hard <laughs> to portray systemic uh, injustice in a one in a one-off book even within a series like this they all like come to a a conclusion ready to start the next book with a fresh story so it it is kind of hard to make a system-wide flaw like that either have it resolved or make 
substantial progress within one book. Yeah. Especially, like, since they lean so heavily on Veterinari's system being one that works. It, it works, but it also leaves a lot to be desired, like any government setup. But I also feel that Veterinari himself knows that and might actually be trying to subtly work towards improving it. And part of that is the way he is encouraging, like the way that Vimes is changing the watch to be more inclusive, mostly out of spite for the people who benefit from the established social order. If, if not out of care for other beings, because he does have that whole, I don't care about you, I'm very much in tune with the system rather than individuals, then causing more, trying to create more harmony amongst the people of Ankh-Morpork lessens the chaos that he has to deal with. Quite possibly, yeah. Oh, some other stuff I wanted to touch on. Nobby, in an early scene, reveals that he is in the Ankh-Morpork Historical Reenactment Society and was excited because he won the opportunity to play the king that Stoneface Vimes executed. That's contrasted with him being offered the role of actual king and panicking at the thought. Not just because of the prospect of his commander coming after him with an axe, but also because he is deeply suspicious of any anything that is presented as a good opportunity. Which lends mm -hmm. some insight into how he joined the Watch in the first place. He's like me. He wants to play the character that gets killed, but not actually get killed. That's fair. I do genuinely enjoy playing characters that get killed. There's a difference between fantasy and, like, reality. And so pretending a thing is very different from actually doing the thing. So there's an interesting parallel with the nobles wanting to install Nobby as a puppet king versus the golems wanting to create a leader king. Both of these groups thought that a king was what they needed in order to get what they wanted, but both plans fail because it because they rely so heavily on a sentient being obeying the whims of the people that are trying to create them, or trying to put them into a role. And that leads into a larger theme that I'll want to wrap this all up with at the end. Also, just an aside, uh, this scene where Ankawa gets taken hostage is very fun, but it definitely feels like something that could have been in any of the Watch books. If it could have been expanded into just a short story or something that might have worked better for the flow of the narrative. As it is, it just feels like a like a weird tangent. It comes a little bit out of nowhere and doesn't really affect anything. Yeah, um, just to make sure I have like all my scenes straight. This is the one where like they're in the bar and then I don't remember what the like guys were saying or whatever, but they're uh, the basically all the watchmen were like making jokes about how uh they won't uh help uh Angua because the like I very much don't have all the details there. Yeah. I guess you could say that maybe there's something there about how Angua's treated differently because she's a werewolf and how she has conflict over that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. There's mention of like, she can tell that the other officers keep silver on them, even though they ostensibly respect her and know that she won't attack them. Yeah. And, like, that's a thing that obviously shows up in all of the watchbooks that Ong was in, because that's a big part of her character. 
but I guess it kind of relates to one of Angua's fears is that Carrot may not mind that she's a werewolf, but he minds that other people mind. You're totally right. And she's worried that he's going to ask her to leave the watch to make everybody else more comfortable. Oh, before I forget, there's also the bit where the doctor that they get to look at Vetinari is a horse doctor, and he treats Vetinari like a horse. It does sort of tie into the overall theme of identity stuff, but mostly it's just funny. Here's my argument for what the book as a whole is about, the message it's trying to communicate. That it is inherently damaging to be assigned a role by others. That mental well-being comes from autonomy and being able to define your own place in the world. Mm-hmm. Mixed with a side helping of those who benefit from the social order will leverage what power they have to gain more power. Being told what you are, even if that thing is a king, confining and restricting and ultimately harmful. Mm, agreed. I think that's a good way to like sum it all up. All right. We're nearing the end. That means it's time for some thank yous. I want to give a shout out to Willow Carter for our theme music, to you two for talking with me, and to all of our listeners for joining us. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed this show, I hope that you'll all come discuss it with us on our Discord, Facebook page, Twitter. All the episodes go up on my YouTube channel, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, like most places where you can download people rambling at you. <laughs> and if you really enjoy the show, consider supporting us on Patreon, where everybody who enters gets a chance at winning the patron shoutout. This month, our chosen patron is Tom, who has joined us at the small god level. Hi, Tom. Thank you. Hello. Danny, uh, Tom mentioned that you know what to do in this situation. Okay, that's the thing, though. He said he was gonna, he said he was like, oh yeah, I'm supporting you on Patreon. You know what to do. Only he never told me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> it might have something to do with advertising. I don't remember. Well, that's how it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a good kid anyway. Now... I'm very excited because next month is Hogfather. Ooh. And depending on how things go, we might have a special guest. Ooh. Ooh. Surprises. So are we doing a so we're doing a Christmas for Halloween special? <laughs> yes. It's the Octoberween Spoopsmas. <laughs> so, whose turn is it for the favorite footnote? Detritus was particularly good when it came to asking questions. He had three basic ones. They were the direct, did you do it? The persistent, are you sure it wasn't you that done it? And the subtle, it was you what done it, wasn't it? Although they weren't the most cunning questions ever devised, Detritus's talent was to go on patiently asking them for hours on end until he got the right answer, which was generally something like, yes, yes, I did it, I did it. Now please tell me what it was I did. See you all next time. Until then, the the turtle turtle moves. moves.